Do you remember John Richards was on the stage by himself talking about like how incredible the hospital is and the need for supporting uncompensated care. And then all of a sudden we hear boom. And we're like, what's that weird noise? And there was someone who passed out, like on the side of the stage, going yeah. to the restroom. <laughs> yeah. And then I don't know why I'm laughing because it wasn't funny. It was shocking. It was shocking. And then John was like, "Oh my God, what's happening?" And then all of a sudden, in a different part of the venue, we hear boom. A second person went down, and then within a half a minute. A third person went down. But the incredible thing is that there were so many doctors and nurses <laughs> at the, this event yeah. that they all had professional help in two seconds. Yeah, it, it, it was all ended up being OK. But so I'm, I wasn't sure if they were overserved. I remember okay, what was going well, go on. Ahead. All of those three people were, even though they were in different parts of the venue, all went there together and they ate weed brownies beforehand. Well, there's a lesson there, folks. Yeah, they ate weed brownies and then they were drinking. And <laughs> they, there was something about, like, it was a bad batch. And, Apparently. Yeah. And so they all went down. <laughs> that was the one thing they had in common. They I'm were, glad we can laugh about yeah, this now. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we've got a bit of a theme going on, centered around an amazing organization that's had an enormous impact on so many lives, including mine, and that's Seattle Children's Hospital. Later in the show, we're going to talk about a benefit show that my wife and I created called Smooch, which stands for Seattle Musicians for Children's Hospital. And to help tell that story, I brought in my good friend and return guest to the Nordy Pod, CEO of Sub Pop, Megan Jasper. I've never seen a network of people who collaborate to the degree that the folks in Seattle do. It's different. But before that, I want to introduce you to another good friend of mine, an incredibly accomplished and remarkably compassionate individual, CEO of the Seattle Children's Hospital, Dr. Jeff Sparing. to have Dr. Sparing on the show for quite a while now, and not just because he's a fantastic CEO, but because Seattle Children's Hospital has had a particularly significant impact on my life. But comparable to my respect for the hospital itself is my esteem for the man who strives to maintain its reputation as one of the best children's hospitals in the country. For Dr. Sparing, becoming a physician was a dream that he chased down since the fifth grade. Raised in a family which displayed and encouraged service, he developed a strong desire to do good in the world. And as a means to pay for medical school, Dr. Sparing joined the Navy, and after training, served as one of only three pediatricians caring for over 4,000 Navy and Marine children on an Army base in California. He then transitioned to Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis, where his superiors began to recognize his aptitude for leadership and recruited him into hospital administration. First as their chief medical officer and CEO soon thereafter, Dr. Sparing began zeroing in on potential dream jobs and took a swing in an open position as the CEO at Seattle Children's Hospital. It's apparent that Dr. Sparing deserves each new opportunity he's been given as he talks about the incredible sense of purpose that accompanies his job. Dr. Sparing's story is fascinating and leaves me with nothing but admiration. I'm super grateful to have had the chance to get to know him, and I'm certainly glad people like him exist in this world. So let's get into it. So... This is really going to be a, a fun podcast for me. Um, I, I get the liberty of 
doing things that I kind of want to do here, talking to people I want to talk to, subjects I'm interested in. And this is one that I think at first glance, most people are going to say, why are you talking to this guy? It has nothing to do with Nordstrom or anything, but it has a lot to do with me personally. So I am super happy to have Dr. Jeff Sparing, the CEO of Seattle Children's Hospital on today. Jeff, thanks for being here. Yeah, no, thanks. For, and congratulations on a year of doing this. I know. Well, I, it's amazing. Yeah, people lo- seem to like it, which is good. So we're going to keep doing it. But um, like we've talked about, we, we cover a lot of different subjects here. And so you might say, well, why is Pete talking to Dr. Jeff Sparing? And, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting into it, but I have my own personal story. A son that was born with a lot of health complications, and we spent a pretty decent chunk of the first year of his life there at Seattle Children's Hospital and just have a profound appreciation for what it is that you guys do there and being able to see it from the inside out. And I'm not the least of which. I mean, you literally saved my son's life, but but seeing what you do for the community and everything. So anyway, it's, it's really nice to have you on. I'm just excited for you to be able to tell the story of Seattle Children's Hospital. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. But I mean, I think, as you said, I mean, what's really amazing, I know we'll probably get into this, is, you know, the story of, of multiple generations of, of Nordstrom family and Guinea family, you know, supporting Seattle Children's, being a part of it, what you've made possible um, and just quickly also just add and getting a chance to be able to spend some time with your dad and brother and 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 you know the difference that your entire family has made obviously through your support of seattle children's now for multiple generations it's pretty extraordinary and we were glad that we were able to honor your family with uh with the naming of our new building and, and great to be able to see all of you to be able to do that but um but even just that connection between nordstrom and, and seattle children's you know in this community for you know for over a century now and then the work and, and again what you've made possible and obviously what you and brandy went through together personally. Yeah, well, that, I mean, you're being generous with uh, our level of contribution of all this, but because the hospital's been around a long time and and done a lot of things, you know, we've we've obviously had our, our connection to it. But I, anyway, I've, I've known about you guys forever and had an appreciation for it, and it's certainly much more personal now. Yeah. So talk a little bit about um, how you grew up and how it puts you in this place that you end up becoming a pediatrician and then, you know, doing this work because, you um, I mean, from what I know about you guys and and how doctors and stuff work, it goes way beyond just being a job. And this might sound interesting, or I think I can make a bunch of money. I mean, it's a calling in a lot of ways that you know, aligns well with your personality and your interests and your ethos. So talk a little bit about how you grew up and how that brought you to this place. You know, I always, I think for me, even as a, as a kid, I kind of recognized that um, in, in a little bit the way my mom and dad raised me, my, my grandparents around this notion of service and, and making sure that you were doing something to make things better for other people. You know, I was one of those, I wanted to be a doctor when I was in fifth grade. I mean, I can go back. So why and I, is that? I know, right? It's one of those, like, <laughs> I, I specifically remember. So my fifth grade teacher, Miss Griffith, um, her son was going through medical school at the time. And I remember as a, as a fifth grader and, you know, I was pretty good at math and pretty good at science and, and wanted to kind of do good in the world. And I remember hearing about like what he was doing in medical school. And for whatever reason, that just stuck. And I was like, that's, so what, your parents, that's what I want to do. Like your parents weren't physicians or? No, not, not at all. I'm the first physician in my family. My dad actually is the first member of our, our, our family to graduate from college. Like, no, this, there was no, there was no background in this. It was just something that stuck with me that this is what I wanted to do. But your path is you were in the Navy. So is that what got you into medical? school or what, how did that work? So you went to Vanderbilt. I know that. Yeah. So no, it's, it's uh, one of those things I, I was accepted to, to medical school at Vanderbilt um, and realized after like the first year, there was no way I was going to be able to afford doing this just through doing student loans and was incredibly fortunate. The The Navy has a medical scholarship program. Um, I was drawn to this idea of service. Both my grandfathers had been in the, in the military. And so this idea of service was great, but frankly, it was also just a way I could pay for school and be able to do that. And so I went through medical school on a Navy scholarship. Um, and then after that, finished my my uh, pediatric residency training um, with the Navy and then spent uh, three years taking care of Navy and Marine kids in, uh, in the Mojave Desert in 29 Palms, Wow, California. so that, that was the obligation is once you get through school, you're, you're going to do That's exactly right. So you finish years. your training and whatever, however, whatever is kind of one year of payment for medical school, one year of obligation back. Exactly. Oh, wow. And yeah. so you did that work in California, you said? Yeah, so I was in uh, 29 Palms, California, so did my uh, three years of pediatric residency in San Diego, and then, yeah, spent three years out by Joshua Tree uh, National Park out in uh, 29 oh, wow, Palms. Yeah. Um, there is a huge... It's hot out there. It is way hot out there. Yeah, no air conditioning either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, uh, it was pretty interesting three years, but there are about 4,000 uh, Navy and Marine kids that live out there because their their families are deployed out to this kind of massive Marine base out in 29 Palms, and so there were three of us as pediatricians that lived out there and took care 
care of kids. So what was your focus as a pediatrician? I mean, was it just a general practice thing or did you have a specialty that you were focused on? Yeah, so I started out in just primary care pediatrics, exactly, taking care of kids um, in clinic and doing that. Um, I gradually transitioned to become what's called a pediatric hospitalist. So I, I really liked the idea of taking care of kids in the hospital, kids that were sick and really needed that higher level of care. And so I transitioned kind of midway through my career to do that until I got kind of sucked into hospital administration um, in 2009. Wow. Okay. So, and then you went to work at Indiana University at the Children's Hospital there. Is that right? That's exactly right. So I got recruited to join the Children's Hospital in Indianapolis, which is called Riley Hospital for Children. Um, And again, started there as a pediatric hospitalist and then became chief medical officer there 2009 and then was CEO there um, in 2011. So, So how does that happen? Who's evaluating the job that you do and says, this guy should have an administrative leadership role as well? How does that work? No, you know, again, as I said, there was no plan to this and I've been incredibly fortunate to have amazing mentors and supporters, but the, the quick story was I'm a pediatrician taking care of kids, um, running a, a program, and the, the CEO of the hospital at the time in 2009 asked me into her office and says, we've never had a chief medical officer here at Riley. We want you to be the first one. How old were you at this time? At that point, what, I would have been 40? So you're a young guy. Yeah, I would have been 40. Big responsibility. Huge. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. And again, she, she was an amazing kind of supporter and someone you didn't say no to, so I said yes. And I did that for about three years, and then she left to run the University of Michigan Medical Center and the CEO job was open and I didn't didn't apply for it at all didn't think that was anything that I was going to do um, and they went through a search process and eventually got called into the the board chair's office to say that we want you to be the CEO so you've got to have some stories about those years when you're a pediatrician you're taking care of patients and all that stuff does anything kind of jump to mind to you about just an experience that you had with a patient you know good or bad that you know, really just made a huge impact on you at that time and, and helped maybe shape the leader you've become? Yeah, I mean, I, there are tons of stories as always. And I think some of them, as you say, are, are the more memorable ones when, you know, you really are just faced with kind of an immediate crisis. Um, you know, I, I remember, again, being, you know, a pediatrician at the Navy Hospital out in 29 Palms in the desert. So we're three hours away from any major kind of children's hospital at that point. And, you know, not a lot of resources there. And I remember, you know, a, a young mom coming and delivering a, a 24-week premature baby. So, you know, a baby that's less than a pound at that point where you need to be in a NICU pretty quickly. Um, but thankfully, again, I had gotten such great training, you know, in during pediatric residency, I was I was able to actually care for that baby while we waited for, you know, the couple hours for the transport team to be able to come and found out later on that, you know, she ended up doing really well. Um, well so, so the transport team, like a helicopter came yeah, so they, they Yeah, they have to they have to helicopter out to be able to pick up when they're that small and that and that urgent. But in the meantime, you know, we had to, you know, I had to make sure the baby was innovated, had access to IV lines and fluids and you know, was doing that with teams that weren't used to taking care of kids because it wasn't a children's hospital. So yeah, it's just, you know, it was amazing because when my son was in there at a week old or whatever it was, it's like, how do you even like put an IV in a kid and all this? I'm so, I, how do you intubate and like get a kid hydrated that's one pound? I, how does that even work? It's incredibly complicated, very small airway. Um, we actually go through their umbilical lines, umbilical vessels, umbilical veins at the time because they've just been born yeah. to insert these really small catheters in there so that we can, you know, get labs that we need and, and give fluids that way. You know, it's one thing to do it, you know, as, as you experience when you're in the middle of a children's hospital and you've got all that expertise around you. It's another Another thing to literally be out in the middle of nowhere trying to do that, you know, with team members that just aren't used to being able to do that. So stories like that, I, I yeah. think for me, I, I was really fortunate to, to make a difference. The, and the cool part is that, you know, I, I would get a letter, you know, 18 years later from a mom who tracked me down, you know, with a picture of, of their son graduating from high school. And I remember that kid being in the NICU and oh, recognizing wow. the difference that we all get to make in, in this work. Yeah, that's really amazing. What about the whole idea of how bedside manner comes into play? Because the it's one of the things I noticed being there at the hospital with our child is that you're not just taking care of the patient. You've got to deal with the families. Any stories about how to communicate, you know, tough subjects with families? Yeah, no, I think, think, think you're right, Pete. I mean, it is when you decide to become a pediatrician, you recognize that you have many people that you're going to be caring for in that. So it really is about the, the care for the child, but obviously with parents and how you can help support them through that. Um, yeah, no, un- unfortunately, you know, lots of, of times where, you know, you've had to deliver devastating news to a mom or a dad or, you know, help support them as their child, you know, passes away and finding the best way that you can 
can, you know, in those moments to be connected and, and be empathetic, be human, help and support them recognizing what incredibly challenging moments, you know, those are. Um, a lot of people ask, you know, why do you do pediatrics? And I think, you know, what we have all found is that sometimes those are the moments that mean the most to you, you know, when things are harder, when things don't go as well um, as you would have wanted them to, but hoping that in those moments you, you helped you know, you helped a, a mom or a dad to, to be able to kind of go through yeah, that. Yeah, I'm just super intrigued by that because we say this around here all the time. It's like, you know, we're not curing cancer here. We're not, it's not life and death. We're selling shoes. And, but you literally are trying to cure cancer and you are talking about life and death. So I, I've got to imagine, I mean, uh, the great things have got to give you, put you on a real high and make it great to come to work. But some of those tough things, I, I just can't imagine how you kind of keep showing up day after day when that's a real possibility of what any day is going to look like. Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're right. And I think for us, again, that's why this work for so many of us is is more of a calling than it is anything else, because you know that you're going to have to go through those experiences. But again, I, I would say that some of the most impactful times for me were those times when things didn't go the way that we wanted to, or we couldn't tell the mom or dad that their child is going to survive and make it. And how do we make that as good as we can? How do we help support all of you through that process? You know, those are special moments where you know that you have an impact, but it, it's hard. Yeah. So you ended up joining Seattle Children's Hospital in 2015. So how did that happen? Was it just like any other job where someone's recruiting you? You got like a cold call like, hey, this job's open or. Yeah, no, you, you know, there are it, like children's hospitals were, were a relatively small family. There are, you know, there are only a couple of dozen of kind of the largest children's hospitals and we all know each other well. And okay, so like, let, let's stay on that. Okay, so, sure. so there's like a dozen big ones and Seattle Children's is one of them. Yeah. So so there are, you know, there are about 200 uh, children's hospitals in, in, in the United States of any of any kind of different different sizes, but there are about 50 to 60 of kind of the really large kind of freestanding children's hospitals that offer all the specialty services, all the surgical services, you know, and then there are only a few that are like Seattle Children's where we have a hospital, we have a research institute, where we're also beyond just doing clinical care. You know, I have 2000 team members kind of discovering new therapies and new cures. You know, we're doing research and, and a foundation raising money. So it, it's a dream job. So, you know, Amy and I had always talked about if there was any job that ever came open, you you know, would we ever leave and apply for it? And and we had just a couple of them on the list, and Seattle Children's was clearly one of them. And so, that's just because of the reputation. The, re the reputation, the the community here. Obviously, you know, getting to live in a city like Seattle, but the reputation of, of Seattle Children's again, both as a leading clinical hospital, but the research institute and everything else was going. So we didn't think we'd have any shot at it, but we decided we'd take a take a shot and see. Yeah, because you know, when our son was going through these challenges. You know, it's really hard on a parent trying to figure out what you want to do. And you know, fortunately, we were in a position where we could do whatever had to be done. And I remember saying, you know, should we be thinking about going somewhere else to, you know, have this open heart yeah. surgery and all this stuff? And they said, well, you know, the good news is there's really only about maybe three places in the country that do it to the level and have had the amount of experience That's that right. we've had. So the good news is you don't have to go somewhere. I mean, you don't have to put yourself in a position where you're staying in some place that's not home and, you know, putting all that stress on your family. You can do this literally right in the city where you live, which, you know, in retrospect, looking back on it, I'm super grateful for because I can only imagine how difficult it must be for people that have to leave their homes right. and for extended periods of time while their children are going through, you know, whatever issues they're going through. But we, we were super fortunate that Everything that was needed for our son was able to be done at Seattle Children's Hospital. So, yeah, I do have an appreciation for and maybe it's just my own way of, uh, you know, feeling good about our local <laughs> situation here. But it's like we have one of the best ones in the country. So it's all good here. Yeah, no, we, I mean, we are the, the team at Seattle Children's is just absolutely amazing. And to your point, I think one of the great things for our community to know is that we've got that level of expertise here. And to your point, the number of families that actually travel to Seattle from all over the country because we have something that maybe, you know, other their local children's hospital doesn't or we have clinical trial or surgical expertise that that others don't. So we are incredibly fortunate when you've got that level of expertise and it happens to just be here at home. Um, but you also know that, you know, every day we take care of kids and families from Alaska and Montana oh, yeah. and Idaho who are traveling thousands of miles to come to Seattle Children's, you know, that's their home children's hospital, even though it's, you know, 1500 miles away in Anchorage or, you know, a thousand miles away in, in Montana. So it's something extraordinary and kind of a privilege for us to always think about this region that we call home. And we just don't want people to take that for granted. So when you get to Seattle 
and it's you know it seems like a big step for you. You're now one of the major places really in the country, and that that's all going to be great. At what point did your experience there really give you the full appreciation of what Seattle Children's Hospital is all about? Because obviously you knew about it by reputation and, and statistics that you could read on paper. Yeah, no, and I mean, there's actually one quick summary story to, to this, because to your point, you know, you know the reputation, you know the team, you know those outcomes. I flew here to do my interview. Um, it was a you know candidate interview of CEO, flew into SeaTac, got in the taxi and told the taxi driver where I was going. And, he's, and I said, and, you know, I need to go to Seattle Children's. He immediately starts telling me the story about how Seattle Children saved his son's life, right? And it's like that that moment when you, you must get you, that a lot, like at dinner parties, when you introduce yourself, like, "Tell me what you do." I'm at Children's Hospital. Do you literally? You must get a ton of stories. Almost every day, there there is another story. And again, the, I mean, it has nothing to do with me, right? It's it's about this incredible team and this amazing organization. But it speaks to exactly what you said. Like, how do you know when you get here? Like, is this the place that I really thought it was? And I just I remember that moment, just as like, wow, like I literally have met my first person in Seattle and their first story is about this place that I'm going, you know, to be able to hopefully work for someday and about how it saved, you know, his son's life. And it's just kind of kept going from that. You, I got there and, and met the team and I have never met a team who is so dedicated to this mission, you know, to changing kids' lives and doing that. And so for me, I was, I was hooked from there. Um, and thankfully was just fortunate enough that I got the job. So talk about the nuts and bolts of what a CEO job at a hospital is. So I, I can only imagine the amount of administrative things that must go on, but like, how many people work there? You know, how many patients go through there a year? How many people actually report to you? And what are those different jobs? You know, we um, we have about eleven thousand people that work at Seattle Children's at any given time. There are about nine thousand of them that are direct employees of ours. Some of them are physicians who are faculty at University of Washington School of Medicine that work at Seattle Children's, volunteers, others that are there. But again, about a team of about eleven thousand people. Um, we have about fifteen thousand kids that come into the hospital in any one year, do between twelve to 14,000 surgeries, um, multiple hundreds of thousands of kids that come into any one of our clinics. And we have clinics in 43 different sites throughout the four states, you know, Idaho, Montana, Alaska, and, and Washington State. Wow, that's a lot. I guess I knew that somewhat from being there, but that's when you put those two actual numbers, that's really quite impressive. So I can only imagine then there's that huge community side of it where you're trying to raise money and stuff, because as I know intimately here, yeah. Um, people can't begin to pay for all the care that's needed. And so you you really have a, a serious uh, dependence on the community being bought into this and, and being supportive of it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, we couldn't do what we do without community support and philanthropy. It is what founded us in 1907 and what continues to you know sustain us and help us continue to grow so that we can care for more kids and, and more families. You know, as, as you said, we, you know, between the care that we provide or care that doesn't have any reimbursement for it or services, you know, we do almost $250 million a year of uncompensated care that, you know, again, without the support of the community and what, you know, you do through the Smooch Guild and, and the events and others that all come together to do that. That's what allows us to, to change these kids' lives and make such a difference. Yeah. So people won't know what that is. But uh, after our son had that experience at Seattle Children's Hospital, and he, and he still has follow-ups and he's there for, you know, other issues. But um, once we kind of got out of that critical phase and we're just, we're so grateful, we said, well, we feel like we should do something to help express our gratitude and be supportive of this great community asset. So what we decided to do was because we, we were there, spent so much time there, you could see all these people from all over that clearly couldn't afford the kind of care they were getting. I mean, it's expensive. It is expensive. And, you know, we're fortunate that that wasn't our challenge, but you could see it play out there with all these other families. And it was so impressive to us, just the level of care everyone got regardless of means. And any kid that came in that needed the help, they got it. And it was so impressive to us as let's create some kind of fundraising event that supports uncompensated care. And so your point, $250 million a year goes yeah. to uncompensated care. And we've had a really successful guild and, and raising money. And it's I think we're up about $30 million now after right. 11 years of doing this. And that's amazing and everything, but it's just a drop in the bucket compared to annually what you need to be able to 
provide that service. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, but I, that, to me, the really important piece of this is it really takes everyone in the community coming together to be able to do that in, in all of their own ways. I mean, that's what allows us you know, to raise the money that we do f- through philanthropy to be able to support the programs and the services to be able to do that. I mean, it, it, it's extraordinary. And back to one of the things that you, know, you asked earlier, I've never seen a community that supports its children's hospitals and kids like this community in Seattle does. And so one of the things that we're incredibly fortunate, it allows us to do this work because so many people come together, 400 different guilds that come together to, to support in their own way, you know, donors that, that make sure that we're able to keep that founding promise from 1907, that we were going to be here for every kid that needed us, regardless of whether the family could pay or not. So what is it about Seattle you think why is that? I hope a little bit of it is because just the unique nature of, of Seattle Children's and that commitment to really live out that kind of founding promise. And, and people have experienced that and they see it, they hear it in stories from family members and coworkers. And so I just think there's a level of trust that's been built up that, you know, the community wants to continue that and, and support that to be able to do that. Um, I also think it's a city that recognizes, I mean, you know, that our kids are the future of, of what is going to be our society and our communities. And, and so keeping them healthy and understanding the impact of what we can do today, more importantly, what that impact is going to be out for, for decades and generations um, is something that I hear from a lot of community leaders that we talk about why that's so important to them. Yeah. So there's there's all these great feelings that go along with Seattle Children's Hospital. And like my point about if you go to a dinner party or meet people and you talk about it, I got to imagine most of the time it's like, that's amazing. It's great. Yeah. But as, as a person that also is involved with leading a large group, there's stuff that goes wrong, too, that's not always great. So I, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the challenges you guys have had as you've grown. And, you know, there is a bright light that's shown on you guys. and There's a high level of expectation. And maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you guys face as you've been growing. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And the, kind of those leadership moments where you have to be, again, the integrity of saying, hey, we're really proud of the work that we do as, as a team and an organization. But there are times that we don't get it right. And, and being able to be open about that because the community community trust is built on that willingness to be able to do that. And, and I think some of it, Pete, just comes out of as well that I don't know, to your point, that people sometimes understand the complexity of the work, you know, that we do every day and what's different in a children's hospital. You got to experience it kind of firsthand, the level of acuity and complexity and everything that we do. But, you know, I, I the, the quick difference that I just one example um, in our pharmacy every day. So if, if we were an adult hospital and I had 24 patients on a unit and they all needed the same medication, it's exactly the same medication same pill, same dosage. I just need to get 24 of those out and deliver them to the patients and that's fine. If I have 24 kids in a unit and they need that medication, every one of them needs a different dose and a different mixture of that based on their weight, age, and other kind of complications. So for us, that means that our team thousands of times a day is mixing a specific medication specifically for that child and doing it over and over again. And we've got to get that right 100% of the time. And there are complexities of that. You know from your experience, again, in open heart surgery, when, when our surgeons are doing open heart surgery on a newborn, you know, a baby's heart is about the size of a strawberry. Right. And you think about going in and having to do surgery like that. So I think that is the hard part is that we we do that work and we earn that trust in incredibly complicated times. But sometimes things do go wrong and we and we've got to be open about that. And, and we've certainly had our challenges because I think as again, as an organization, you show your integrity, you show your level of trust by being open about you know issues, owning them and then making changes to, to fix them and get them right. Yeah. And as you know, I mean, you, you don't have a lot more bigger advocates for your place than me. So I'm not saying this stuff to be critical, but I'm just, I think I'm trying to give people a 360 view of of what happens there. Another thing that came up a few years ago, so when we do this event, we ask different musicians and artists to participate in essentially like a concert where we raise a bunch of money. And um, I remember a couple years ago, we had one of the artists we wanted to participate. They said, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm like, why not? Because normally it's like, Seattle Children's Hospital, I'm in. But someone said, no, like, well, why not? They said, well, there's a racial equity issue out there, and I don't know what that's all about. So I don't feel comfortable, you know, donating my time and talent. Can you talk about that um, situation that you guys had to work through? Yeah, no. So, you know, again, we obviously is one of our core values is Seattle Children's is equity. It's something that we have been committed to. Um, but like all of us is over the last, you know, several years have obviously had to to come to our own reckoning around systemic racism, you know, in healthcare, in society, in our community, and the work that we all needed to do. And I think for us, it was, again, recognizing through a kind of a public resignation of one of our physicians that, you know, there was more work that we needed 
needed to do to make sure that we were living out that core value of equity. And so over the last year, you know, we have been very open in public kind of reporting on our progress towards our health equity and anti-racism work, working on the diversity of our team, being able to meet that goal, eliminating disparities as we see outcomes based on race, and continuing to make sure that Seattle Children's is a place that everyone feels included and they feel like they belong. I think what's been really interesting for us is that as we have really been more public and open about this work, um, we've had children's hospitals from around the country come and, and ask us and want to collaborate with us on the work that they're doing so they could learn from our experiences some of the things that we're leading in. They want to kind of obviously learn on how we've been able to do that. So I think it is a, it's a great opportunity for all of us to, to recognize where we're still falling short, where we've got gaps, and how we can collaborate together to, to make a change. Well, I applaud you guys. I know you've taken it seriously and you've taken it head on, so good for you. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, from the job you do now, and you've been doing this for a while, and there's, there's a lot of positive things that are happening there. Like, what's a good day look like to you? Yeah, you know, I mean... I'm a pediatrician and, and I work at a children's hospital. So at the end of the day, a good day for me is, is seeing moms or dads or and, and with, their, with their children leaving the hospital, right? That to me is the ultimate outcome that we want to see. Again, as we talked about, I mean, I, just an incredibly dedicated team that pours their heart and soul into this work. Um, and I worry about them. I mean, the stress of the pandemic over the last several years, um, as we've seen record volumes come in recently with, you know, this kind of triple uh, virus epidemic with RSV and influenza, you know, the demand. Yeah. Yeah, you guys were talking about that recently. I mean, you're you're full up there. Right? Yeah, no, we've seen just record numbers of kids and families, you know, that, that need our care um, in the hospital, in the emergency department because of the mental health crisis that we're seeing. So I, I think for me, you know, a good day is making sure that our teams are, are okay and supported. But that's that's hard. You know, we were all going through staffing shortages, just like many kind of companies and industries are. But in healthcare, when you're having that, but you're also having this kind of record demand for kids that need your care, you know, you, that, that's the constant challenges. How do we continue to meet that and be able to grow to be able to do that? But but good days for us are, are when we're getting those outcomes and we're changing kids' lives. So you mentioned uh, mental health. Can you talk a little bit about just in your time of having been a pediatrician and being in this business, the need for mental health services, how, how that's grown and, and what that's all about? Yeah, no, it, it's something that we've obviously seen for a long time coming, but I think the pandemic just absolutely accelerated kind of the crisis that we were going through. We were seeing more kids, you know, than ever showing up in our emergency department or, or getting referred into our, our mental health clinics, um, you know, with anxiety or kind of acute crisis, suicidal ideation. But but through the pandemic, you know, those numbers doubled and, and tripled. And so, you know, there are days that, you know, that we will have 10 to 11 kids in the emergency department that are there boarding, waiting for inpatient you know, psychiatry beds or waiting to be able to get services because they're, it's not safe for them to, to go home. The numbers are staggering. And, and again, it's something that we all need to kind of come together to address um, both as hospitals, as clinics, as schools, as, as community uh, leaders to be able to do. So what percentage of the patients coming through there are there because of some kind of mental health issue. It's, so if you actually look at the referrals into our clinic, mental health is actually the number one cause for getting referred to Seattle Children's. Really? Yeah. It, was that the case 20 it, years it's ago? It's been that way for a while, but uh, but again, we're certainly seeing that increase you know, rapidly. And, and wow. again, more importantly, you know, is not the volumes, but the acuity. Um, you know, and unfortunately, again, we see this in schools. I mean, recent surveys of kids in Washington State, you know, more than 25% of them and up to half of them at some point have considered suicide. And so it's something that we're all, you know, nationally as children's hospitals coming together, you know, how do we get ahead of this? How do we kind of continue to increase services, uh, but also support patients and families in their community so that they're not getting to that level of crisis? Right. Um, different subject. So, as you know, we, we've got this event that my wife and I produce and run every year and to benefit uncompensated care at Seattle Children's Hospital. But you've got a lot of different events like that going on. Like, do you find yourself having to go to a different event every night and support this? And because, I mean, you've, you've been nice, you've come to our event and like a lot of the doctors come and stuff. Maybe talk a little bit about the events generally and maybe what is different about our event, which we call Smooch, Seattle Musicians for Children's Hospitals. For Children's Hospitals, absolutely. Um, there, I mean, we have more than 400 guilds, so to your point, there are events happening all the time. There's no way that all of us could get to any of them. Uh, we try to, as a team, make sure that we're you know getting out and being represented where we can. Um, but no, I have loved coming to, to Smooch, but I think it's exactly what you said. It's, it's that kind of personal commitment of taking something that you love and you're passionate about and connecting it with something else that you love and you're passionate about. And 
the way you've been able to kind of bring music and the Seattle music community together through Smooch to raise money for Seattle Children's every year. You know, it's it's a great night. It's it's a lot of fun. But the best part is we get to have fun making a difference and changing kids' lives. And I think that for me is the best part of what we all get to do together. And and you've seen it that direct ability then to know that there's a kid or a family that's going to get world class care that otherwise might not have been able to because we had that night together to be able to do that. So that's what we we love Smooch. It's it's a fun night. Um, but most importantly, we know what the difference it makes for so many yeah. kids. No, it's been enormously gratifying for us knowing that it, it does make a difference. And, you know, it's a lot of fun and it's it's fun to see the doctors there and they say, oh, we really like this event. It's really fun. And I, and that feels sincere. I don't think they're just telling me that. So it's it, all the way around. No, it is, just, it is, it's been super gratifying for it, us. It is fun. But I mean, I, I guess I, I mean, I'd ask you because part of this is, is, I mean, this is not like it's easy to put together. I mean, the, the amount of time that you and Brandy need to dedicate with your team to be able to do that and get the acts. Yeah, well, the team sure, is basically like four people. Exactly. So yes. Yeah. So, so I think, <laughs> again, to me, that's the most amazing thing is it's it's the level of commitment to support kids, but the energy and the time that people are willing to invest to make that happen. And I think, again, Smooch is a great ex- example of that because, you know, I can only imagine the hours that are put into kind of just making that one night happen, but then knowing the impact that that has, you know, throughout the rest of the year because kids' lives are changed. Yeah, you know, it's also not as hard as you might think because if you tell people what it is we're trying to do, it doesn't take a long explanation. And most people get it instantly. They say, oh, Children's Hospital, uncompensated care, that sounds great. It doesn't hurt that you get pretty good talent, though, too. So. Well, we get good talent. Yeah, yeah. we get, we, you know, we're able to leverage good connections and relationships here in the Seattle music community. But anyway, we're, we're going to keep doing it. You guys do a great job, and we're super proud to be attached to it. And so you can count on us. I love it. Well, look at Jeff, I just want to close by saying thank you, first of all, for doing this for being part of the podcast, but really mostly for the work you do. I've I've wanted to have you on this for a long time for all kinds of selfish reasons, but I think it's important that people understand the good work that you guys do and kind of how it all works from behind the scenes. So congratulations on all your success and, and thank you. Yeah, no, thanks, Pete. Appreciate the partnership. So you've heard all about what an incredible asset the Seattle Children's Hospital is for our city. And we've mentioned what an unbelievable spirit of generosity this community displays rallying together to support uncompensated care at the hospital. Now I'd like to take a little time to talk about what my wife Brandy and I created as our way of contributing to that mission. And quite frankly, this thing rocks. So as you heard in my conversation with Dr. Sparing, it's called Smooch, which stands for Seattle Musicians for Children's Hospital. And to help tell the story, I brought back my good friend, Megan Jasper, the CEO of Sub Pop, who plays a massive role in putting this show together. We're all super proud of what we've accomplished, both in terms of fundraising and in creating an awesome night of music. So I thought we'd take this opportunity to share with you some of our favorite moments in Smooch history. Okay, so to add to the children's hospital story that you heard, you know, Dr. Jeff Sparing speak of. I've invited my good friend Megan Jasper to come in. Now you've heard Megan before on the podcast. What was that? Episode three? Probably. Four? I mean, in early days, I had to wrangle the people I knew. And so you're one of them. So. It was early and it was super fun. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad you came back. So <laughs> the reason I've got Megan here, like, why, why is she talking about children's hospital? <laughs> and the reason is, and you heard us talk about a little bit, there's an event that my wife and I founded essentially, and it's been going on now for 11 years. And <laughs> we decided early on we wanted this fundraising event to have a music component to it, actually really be about music as the hook to get people to attend this event. The first year, we got, I got friends, bands, and stuff, and this is great, and it was cool, and it was fun. But I'm like, at a certain point, this is not going to be sustainable for me. My circle of acquaintances in this town with music is pretty good, but it's not going to be enduring for years. So I think I got to get someone else in here to help us get music acts for this event. So when I thought about who is in this town that could help make that happen, Megan was at the top of my list. So 
I think we called you and asked you to come to lunch, John Richards and you myself. Did. Is that right? Yeah. Right? I got a phone call or an email from you asking if I would join you and John for lunch. And I always say, like, when you're approached by Pete Nordstrom and John Richards to do something, like, you just don't say no. <laughs> well, plenty but, of people say no to me all the time, <laughs> but that's nice that you would say. So John is a, a local DJ here at KXP Radio, which is super influential and a guy I've been friends with for a long time. And so, yeah, that's how this came to be. I, I pulled in John and Megan and, and basically told the story. Um, my son was born with a, a fair amount of complicated and pretty serious genetic issues. The primary issue is that it required him to have open heart surgery, I don't know, at two months of age or whatever it was. It was very young and very stressful and, um, you know, a, a challenging time for us. You know, everything ended up turning out well and they took such great care of him and everything. And we were just so appreciative of all that. And had a good experience in the hospital that we want to try to pay it forward by seeing if we could create an event that would help support their mission, which essentially their mission is we're going to serve everyone that shows up regardless of means. And that's probably the only background I really gave you. And I, I seem to recall you're just like, yes, yeah. I'm in. Yes. Well, I your story is so moving and that you and Brandy were inspired to do something to further support families and kids like I found all of it so moving. But what you didn't know when you and I sat down was that one of my dear friends went through a similar experience that you and Brandy went through. And I sat with them in that lobby while their daughter had open heart surgery. Oh. And it's, you know, a gut wrenching moment when you're just sitting there waiting. But what I was loving in that moment was that that hospital is so not gloomy or like grossly sterile like it feels uplifting in a way like there are colors and it's it's comfortable and the staff is extraordinary and it's like they all know what you're going through and you get that hit from them like they understand. Yeah. Going back again, you know, 11 years or so, we said, OK, Megan, we want to add some marquee value to what we're doing here. We want to get great music acts. We don't want this to feel like a typical fundraising event where people show up in a hotel ballroom and have some kind of dinner served to them and some kind of auction or, you know, there's not that there's anything wrong with those things, but we got to create something different. And again, as I remember, you were just like, yes, yes, all yeah. in, yes. And pretty quickly, the ideas started flowing. Like, yeah. who do you think we could get? I mean, that's always like the super fun part too, right? Because you guys wanted it to feel like a really fun show. The first year that I participated was, I think you don't have that poster up. No, I don't. It I got to update um, my posters. Lonely Forest. Yep. Shelby Earl. Yep. The Helio Sequence. Yes. Was it Macklemore? Yes. Um, hang on. Alan Stone. Alan Stone yep. and Macklemore. Yep, and Macklemore. Yeah, that was, that was a good one. That was amazing. And Macklemore, at that moment, had been nominated for, was it six or seven Grammys? Well, we should know this because we just talked about it on our show because we interviewed Ben McLemore. Let's he call won, it a shitload. He won four Grammys. And as I recall, yeah. I mean, he was literally in that moment yeah. the biggest art, artist on the planet. It was mammoth. The place just like erupted. Yeah. when he came out on stage. It was and so great because it, it just it, it put us on the map too, right? So yeah. we had this new thing we were trying to do. We're competing with all the other events around holiday time. Why would anyone go to this thing? And we started yeah. pretty modest fashion and we went out and had the Macklemore thing, which was amazing. But then I remember <laughs> when it was over, it's like, I'm not sure how we're going to top this. How are we going to keep the momentum going? I know. Um, but I feel like over the years, what we ended up doing, we for many years, we had four artists, which that's a lot. It is. Some years we've had five. But what we did was we always made sure we had a solid, awesome marquee band that could easily sell out the show box. But really what we shot for was someone who could sell out a larger venue. Yeah. And we would get two of those yeah. most of those years. So if you think back on the many years we've done this and all the 
different artists we have. What what kind of stands out to you, whether it's moments or particular artists? Oh, man. I feel like every year there's something that's kind of extraordinary. But this last year, there was something about, like, our headliner fell through a week before. I called up Pete. Like, yeah, that was rough. When I knew <laughs> that maybe that could happen, I, I was like, he needs to know just in case this falls apart. Um, and you were so awesome about it, which I was grateful for. But you mean I didn't yell at you or something like it was your fault? No, like I felt like oh, I'm going to just crush Pete right <laughs> I, now. I, I it's may like, have swore. I don't know. You did not swear. <laughs> I'm sure I did. But, um, there was something about all of these local musicians coming together, make like there was such a hardcore rally around making it work. And it felt special in a totally different way. But then there were musical moments that I think were just so memorable, like Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Remember when they came in? Yeah, from New Orleans. I mean, which is kind of not your typical rock concert thing. And we and you said, I think we can get Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Like, really? And so, yeah, that yeah. was amazing. And we they had rocked so hard. It was jazz, yeah. but they brought the house down. Yeah, they did. Sir Mix-a-Lot, that performance was super memorable. I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my yeah. head. I mean, some of the Fantagram. big moments. Yeah, Fantagram. And that was amazing. And we had Built a Spill was on that. Built a Spill. And then Taco Cat. Yeah, um, that was incredible. And then, you know, like we had Red Cross come up from L.A. and, and did it one year. Yeah. Um, you know, we had the new pornographers from Canada come down and play it. Yeah, we've had I Jay mean, Jay Maskus. Maskus comes out from the East Coast and did it. Yeah, and like brought the house down with his electric guitar that was like set up with all the amps around him. It was and completely it was loud. loud. I remember that. Yeah, it was loud. Yeah. I mean. He will make you deaf with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> and then the crowd, the, the way that they respond to it's I don't know. I mean, it's I really look forward to it every yeah. year. I, I think it's just incredible. And, you know, it's amazing that the format hasn't changed a lot since we first started doing it. But it is true every year we do the patient family, which may be the best moment of the night. Yeah. In between the bands, we share why we're there, kind of like just make sure everyone's on the same page. We, we want everyone to have fun, but we also want to celebrate the fact that we're here to help people and to help families. Yeah, you know, the thing that really strikes me to, there's two big things. First of all, it's such a poignant reminder of the community asset that is Seattle Children's Hospital and how important the work is they do and how people are rallying behind that cause yeah. and they get it. The other thing is, you know, Seattle's a big bustling city with a lot going on, but there is yeah. this really strong foundation of music yes. and the music business that in a lot of regards put the city on the map, you know, 30 Absolutely. years ago, wherever it was. And it's a proud moment, it feels like to me, for the city, because we always have local acts and you yep. know, largely local people and stuff on the, on the bill that maybe become national acts, what have you. It's a really proud moment, I think, to see that interplay that happens, a celebration yep. of the music community. I think you, I'm so glad you said that, because I think that is so spot on. The Seattle music community is different from so many other cities. So talk about that. So, I mean, you've, your experience with... yeah every music community in the country and you're from the East Coast. And so how is it that Seattle's different? I've never seen a network of people who collaborate to the degree that the folks in Seattle do. I feel like people here collaborate more and compete less. Like, I think they see more like what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And that it's different. You it think is about how fun different. it is for us. And, and you and I tend to do this. We'll be yeah. side stage. But you know when acts are playing, and I don't know if this happens when people are out on the road on tour, maybe not, but all of the acts kind of want to see the other acts play. Yeah. They may be in the green yes. room, but they come out and they're checking it out or they're standing there in the audience kind of cheering each other on. That's a fun moment, too. That's a really fun moment. So you had COVID two years ago yeah. and you missed that event. And what was incredible was while Shayna was performing. Shayna Shepard. Yep. Shayna Shepard, who was like. We've, just, we've had her on the Nordy Pod, too. Yeah. yeah she, and what an incredible vocalist, front person, performer she is. Like, holy moly. While she was just 
destroying that stage. The artists were side stage, literally bowing to her. <laughs> I mean, and it is, you're right, it is so much fun. Like they support each other. They love seeing each other and they're seeing each other on this great stage. Like the yeah. Showbox is a special venue. All right. So people are listening in says, this is compelling. I might want to support this. <laughs> what can we tell them that might be in store for this next year? Because you know, we're just starting to talk about, OK, what do we do now? I would say what we can promise them is an extraordinary and memorable evening. And what will that look like? We have no fucking idea right now. <laughs> but it's going to be amazing, and it's possible that there will be curveballs that happen before then. Yes. And even the curveballs can sometimes even make it better. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, the, the humanity of what this whole thing is <laughs> is part of what makes it awesome. So, yeah. Look, at Megan, you're great. I mean, it's I'm super grateful for your contribution to this. And um, I know it makes you proud, and it, it, it does us too. And it's it's just been super gratifying what we've been able to do on behalf of the families and the children that need Seattle Children's Hospital. And um, we're going to keep doing it. I hope you'll keep with us, hang in there with us, because we want to keep doing it. I want to keep doing it with you. And I think you and Brandy are so friggin' amazing for getting this going. Like, really, truly, like, this is special. Well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things we talk about when we created it is like, we want to create an event that we actually want to go to, you know, and so that selfishly, we end up talking about the acts we'd like, you know, the bands we'd like, how it's all going to go. But that seems to have worked. So it's it's working for us personally and it's working for the community. And, you know, we're, we're really proud of it. Well, that's important because this year will be the second one that falls on your wedding anniversary. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. So we, we, we better make this a good one. <laughs> better be. All right. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom, so if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail. And you might just hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when we take a special trip to the Midwest and hear some rather remarkable and sometimes disturbing stories from our distribution and fulfillment centers. Tell me what was the most unusual return you ever took back. I have opened a box of ammo, a very large. What do you mean, case. like bullets? Yes, bullets. And the police well, had to clearly come and we pick don't them up. we don't sell bullets. Correct. <laughs> I never will understand this. We get so many shoe boxes back, and there's just knives in it. What do you mean knives? I think they use the knife to open the box that they receive their shoes in, and then somehow it always ends up back in the shoe box. We have moldy potatoes that were returned, some Pop-Tarts that were returned. Actually, today, they just opened up a box and had, there's used kitty litter in the box. We've put it out there that X, Y, and Z cannot be returned, and they've returned them. Yeah. Things that require batteries. Pardon me? Oh, I think I know what you're talking about now. <laughs> well, I mean, so are you telling me, like, okay, I'm so, I'm so glad I have Pete Nordstrom here, because what I want to tell him is that you, you need to change Stop your return policy. taking vibrators back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're really going to enjoy this behind-the-scenes look into an essential link in our supply chain to meet some incredibly hardworking people who make possible our goal to deliver the world's best products to you. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod. <laughs>